Hey everyone, I'm Lucas Prado, Sanctus Pickering Pastor, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by enabling people of all ages to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. I hope you're really excited to the message today. Well, hey church family, this is Joel, and it's uh, such a great privilege to be sharing with you this morning. I don't know if you know this about me, but uh, I'm a woodworker. I got into it during the pandemic. I never took shop class in high school, nothing like that. I've been doing it just for two and a half, three years now, and I absolutely love it. I'm a Kijiji rat. I'm on always looking for used tools, flipping tools. I love spending time in my little shop. It all started when I built Sophie, my daughter, a treehouse three summers ago, and I loved it. She loved it. She still plays in it. And then my wife wanted to buy her this Montessori bed, and it cost like $800. I was like, it just looks like two-by-fours and dowels. I can, I can figure that out. So I went and I bought some two-by-fours and dowels from Home Depot, and I built her a bed. She still sleeps in it. I can't look at it because it was like not exactly good fine joinery, but I fell in love with woodworking. Uh, a few summers ago, I started to buy some tools, and now it's just snowballed into like my favorite thing to do. And what I've learned about woodworking that I didn't know at the beginning is that it's just so tedious, <laughs> sometimes boring. Like, it's, it's real work. My friend Brian, who's uh, kind of my woodworking mentor and a great friend of mine, he said to me once, you know, there's, there's no step in the process of building a piece of furniture that's all that fun. It's, it's all kind of difficult. It's work. Sanding is the worst thing ever. But to see like a pile of wood on the floor or a tree in the forest come to life as a piece of furniture that you can put in your home, it's just an amazing thing. But woodworking is, is not really always exciting. It's more about continually practicing the right things over and over again in this boring way over the long haul. Now, Brian and I can make the exact same table out of the exact same pile of wood, and his is just going to look better than mine. We do all the same things. Our, our tools are similar. But because he's been doing it over and over for so long, he just knows what he's doing. That's what produces the beautiful table. You can have all the nice tools, uh, but if you're, just, you're still new at it like me, uh, there's no comparison to the, to the long-haul commitment to doing something faithfully. Our passage today in Romans it's kind of like that. There, there's no real tension in the passage. There's, there's kind of like no cliffhanger or big twist like all of our favorite Disney Plus shows. You know, they teach you in seminary to hold tension when you're preparing a sermon. Keep it interesting. And this passage is just simple and straightforward. The word for this passage, I think, is it's a gift. This passage is beautiful. We've, we've, we've gone through some tough sledding in, in the first three chapters of Romans. And now as it kind of comes to the main point... It's just a gift. It's just beautiful. There, there's no problem resolution. It's just very simple. Paul has made his great claim of justification by faith in the previous chapter, which John preached last week. And this is the center point, so I'm going to read it again. It says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets, the entire Bible, testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. He's just saying, we are justified, made right with God, when we believe in Jesus Christ. Period. It's that simple. We get the credit for His righteousness when we put our faith in Him and what He did for us. That's it. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to earn it. It's a gift that He gives to us when we believe and put our faith in Him. 
So yeah, I don't have like this kind of gripping headline for you today. I don't have this big existential question. I just have a simple one. What does it mean to believe in God? What does it mean to believe in God? If you know your Bible, you know this guy named Abraham. Kind of a big deal. He's, he's famous in our faith for exactly that. Believe in God. It sounds so simple. Like, of course I believe God, or, or I believe there is a God, or I believe in God. But so what? What does that mean? For Abraham, it, it really wasn't as simple as that. See, God showed up in this guy's life in a totally unexpected way, and he called him. He asked him to follow him, not knowing where he was going to take him. He just said that he's going to bless him and bless the world through him and make him a father of many nations. That was the promise when God approached him at first. Now, there was one big problem with that promise. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they were almost 100 years old, and they had no kids. His wife was barren. They were way past the point of, of making new babies. So you think, like, how could anyone believe that promise? How could anyone believe that he'd be a father at the age of 100 after a lifetime of no children? Well, Abraham did. Abraham believed. Listen to what it says in Genesis 12, verse 4. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Not knowing where he was going, not knowing how it was going to work, he just decided to believe and obey and follow the Lord. And then a few chapters later, in Genesis 15, God spoke to Abraham again and reaffirmed his promise and gave him some more clarity. This time, Abraham actually asked the Lord, how, how is this all going to work? You know that I don't have any kids, and, and my wife is barren, and we're, we're, we're way too old for all that. How, how is this going to work? And I actually really like that, by the way. That's called honesty with God. That's just bringing our questions to him. And, and the Lord is gracious, and he actually just, he just answers Abraham. And he said, actually, your, your, your heir will not be someone else. Your heir will be your own flesh and blood. You are going to have a son. Sarah is going to give birth to a boy. And I am going to make you into a real father of many nations. And listen to what it says in, in Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord. And it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the key phrase we're going to come back to. Then, to wrap up kind of the origin story of Abraham, in chapter 21, Abraham's wife, Sarah, who literally laughed when she first heard this promise from God, she gave birth to a son. They named him Isaac, which means laughter. And it says they were about 100 years old when he was born. And this unimaginable promise was fulfilled. Okay, so this is easy, right? But wait, put yourself in Abraham and Sarah's shoes for a second. Would, would you have believed that promise? If you were near the end of your life, you were past that point, and God said you're going to have a boy? How do we believe the promises of God in our own lives? How do we follow him not knowing what the outcome will be? Well, Paul in Romans chapter 4 this week begins by calling us back to this very story of Abraham. This idea of justification by faith is such an important concept for the Roman church he's writing to and for us to understand that Paul takes an entire another chapter just to explain what he just said in Romans chapter 3. So this is, this is not a new topic in chapter 4. We're continuing right along from chapter 3. And to start this new chapter, Paul asks a question. And here's what he says in, in, in Romans 4, verse 1. 
What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? Well, the matter that he's talking about is, is that he just has spent the first three chapters developing his theology of sin. And he did a really good job. <laughs> some, some tough weeks going through those first few chapters, understanding the problem of sin. John Stott could summarize the whole first three chapters on the topic of sin by saying, we saw the ungodliness of sin. Sin is really bad. <laughs> we saw the pervasiveness of sin. Sin is everywhere. And we saw the universality of sin. Sin affects everyone. It's bad, it's everywhere, and everyone is affected by it. That's basically the summary of the first three chapters. But then last week, with Pastor John, chapter 3, second half, finally started to get better. Paul de declared that despite the universal sinfulness of humanity, we can be saved. There is hope. But there's only one way. And it's not by works. It's not by religious practices or by keeping the law, but only through the cross of Christ. Righteousness is given through faith in Jesus to all who believe. That is the central idea. So Paul, bringing Abraham into this conversation, I, I think is, is brilliant. He brings him in as sort of this, this litmus test for God's consistency. He's countering the question in the mind, is this justification by faith a new thing? Have the rules changed? Is it different post-cross? Is the way that God saved people in the Old Testament different than the New Testament? See, in the Roman church that Paul is writing to, you've got both Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles, and each have their own misinformed understanding of what it means to be saved. The Jews often would think that it's by following God's law to a T, or by practicing religious rituals like circumcision that would gain you entrance into the family of God. Meanwhile, some of the Gentiles would think that their good works could save them. But Paul comes in, and he's just about to shut them both down. There is only one way to be saved, and it's not by any of those things. It's just simply by faith. It's by believing in God, and by believing in the one that God sent to us, which is Jesus. So Paul, he brings like the literal Godfather of the faith to settle it. Genesis 4, chapter Verse 2, excuse me. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? We just read it in Genesis 15. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The Scriptures are saying, and Paul is explaining, that in that moment in Genesis 15, when God told Abraham that he was going to be a father to his own son of many nations, and Abraham chose to believe that, that was the moment that Abraham was justified. It was when he fully embraced and believed and stepped into what God was already doing that he was justified. That is when he was credited as righteous. Paul is showing them that justification by faith has been the way that God has always done it. He has been saving people through justification by faith in him, believing in God from the very beginning. Now, this was, this was a huge stumbling block for many people in the early church. So Paul, the, the good theologian, the good pastor that he is, he knows what they're thinking and anticipates their questions, and he starts to break it down. He spends the next 14 verses of the chapter, which I'm just going to touch the high points of, he spends the next 14 verses explaining exactly how Abraham wasn't justified <laughs> to, to work towards his great summary of how he was. 
So, so Paul goes headfirst right into their three big misunderstandings and says, number one, Abraham was not justified by works. Verse four, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Paul uses an accounting term as an analogy to prove his point. This word credited shows up in Genesis 15, and in Romans chapter 4 alone, it shows up 10 times. They teach you in seminary, that's important, pay attention. Paul's trying to get something across. It means simply to count as. This is not some ancient word we don't understand. This is an everyday word for us, to count as credited. Paul says, if you work for your wages, it's not, it's not a gift. You, you just get what you're owed. But we're not owed salvation. And he's saying that there is no amount of work, there's no length of time that you can work to earn eternal life. You can't earn righteousness. So you kind of have two choices. You can, you can get what you're owed, if you want, based on the works that you have done. But he's just spent the first three chapters of Romans making a pretty strong case that the works that we have done result in complete sinfulness. The pervasiveness of sin is what we're owed. So we can't work for righteousness. No matter how hard you work, you'll never measure up. No matter how good you are, no matter how many bad things you don't do, we cannot earn salvation. And if salvation is a goal, is our goal, we'll never measure up without it. It can only be a gift. And it can only be given by the one who truly earned it. And that is Jesus, God's son. The revelation of God. By believing in Jesus, we believe in God. And that's what he's saying. When we believe and put our faith in Jesus, God counts Jesus' righteousness to our spiritual account. Our bank account was empty before, at best. And now it is credited with the righteousness of someone else's work, and that is Jesus. Abraham didn't earn God's favor by what he did either. Abraham was a sinner just like us. So it can't be by works that Abraham was justified. Okay, we've got that. Paul keeps going. Abraham was also not justified by circumcision. Now, to us, this may seem like it's out of left field. Like, why would anybody think that? But he's countering the view of the Jewish Christians in the church that Abraham's justification was at least partially or entirely based on circumcision. This was the Jewish sign of membership into the Jewish nation and with God. It's a covenant sign. But Paul shoots this idea down, like, effortlessly with just some pure logic. Starting in the second half of verse 9, he says, We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited, credited to him as righteousness. But under what circumstance was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? If It was not after, but it was before he was circumcised that he was credited as righteousness. And he received circumcision not as the cause of his salvation, but as the sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. I mean, this is not a complicated point. There's, there's just simple chronology here. The scriptures say in Genesis 15 that Abraham was credited as righteousness. And then, in, and then it's in Genesis 17 that the gift uh, and the covenant sign of circumcision is given. So it literally couldn't have been that he was circumcised when he became righteous because that hadn't even happened yet. And Romans, uh, Paul just makes the simple point to the Romans. And it matters to them because the, this church, like I said, had Gentiles. And they were being told that they had to be circumcised to be Christians. 
to believe in Jesus, you had to be circumcised. Paul comes in, no, 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 you don't understand that at all. That is not how it works. It's not how it worked for Abraham. And if it didn't work for Abraham, it's not going to work for us. Number three, in verses 13 to 15, Abraham explains, excuse me, Paul explains that Abraham was not justified by following the law either. So it's not by works, it's not by circumcision, and it's not by the law. Again, this is an easy one. Paul has been over this and over this. The law exists to show us how sinful we are. How could it save us? The law condemns. It shows us our need for a Savior. It is not our Savior. A Savior that is not ourselves is what the law shows us we need. Furthermore, there's another chronological kind of smackdown Paul gives here. The law hadn't been given yet when Abraham was around. In fact, there was like 430 years in between Abraham and the giving of the law to Moses. So how could Abraham have followed a law that he didn't even have? No, Abraham was justified apart from the law. So in summary, verse 13 Paul says that if it wasn't by works or circumcision by the, or, or, or by following the law, how then was Abraham justified? He says it was not through those things that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes through faith. What I've already said is just so simple. Righteousness that comes through faith. I remember one of the first times that God asked me to do something in faith. It was right around the time I had first come to Sanctus, like 10 years ago, and uh, I had just broken up with this girl that I had been dating that summer. And, you know, uh, I was sitting in my room wondering if I should get back together with her again. The first breakup never takes, Seinfeld reference. And I was just sitting there, and I was just lonely and, and trying to figure out what to do, and I just went down, and I sat at my desk, and I, and I sat at my Bible, and I did the classic open to a random page and hope the answer is just right there staring at me. <laughs> and for the first and only time in my entire life, it actually worked. I couldn't believe it, but I was asking this, as I was asking this question, should I send her a quick text? Should I get back together with her? I opened, I think it was to 1 Corinthians 7. It's where Paul is talking, and he says, for you, it is better to be single. <laughs> And I just couldn't believe it. I was just like, it actually worked. I looked down at it, and it was better for you to be single. And I said, okay, well, I guess it's pretty clear. I guess that's what you want me to do, Lord. And so that's what I did. I didn't, I didn't get back together with her. Now, I had no idea what the outcome of that would be. There was no promise attached to that. Obey me, and I will give you what you want. Do this and get that. It was just do this. That was it. It was just follow me. Just obey. And the amazing thing is that only like two months later, I met Nicole, who is now my wife. And of course, logically, it would have been much more difficult for us to find each other and get married if I had disobeyed that day. Sometimes God asks us just to trust him and doesn't tell us how it's going to go or how it's going to turn out. And it's our job just to believe him and to put our faith in him. So how do we actually do that? Now, how did Abraham actually manage to do that? Because he kind of makes it look easy, you know? What does it look like to really trust God and believe, in the day to, believe God in the day-to-day, -day boring, mundane real life? Like when you're, when you're ripping wood on the table saw or you're sanding and sanding, this, this boring, mundane aspect of discipleship. How do we believe God like that? Well, Paul gets really practical in these last few verses. 
And he explains exactly how Abraham did it. Starting in verse 18, Paul says, Abraham hoped in God when everything else seemed hopeless. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. I mean, what could be more hopeless than being at the end of your life with unfulfilled hopes and dreams? Remember, at this time, like heaven and like eternal life, that hadn't really been explained or revealed yet. Abraham didn't have like a working theology of I'm going to heaven so everything's going to be fine. This was just kind of it. Like this was his life. We all know what it feels like to feel hopeless. Maybe some of us more than others. And Abraham had every right to feel hopeless. But it says against all hope, he hoped in God, not in an outcome. That is not what he put his hope in. He put his hope in a person. He hoped in God. Are you in a hopeless situation? Maybe God is just asking you to put your hope in him. Not in the, the, the situation being resolved, but just in him. Sounds easy, right? I taught my daughter this verse. She memorized it at the age of three. As for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. Psalm 71. And we named our second daughter. Her middle name is Hope. I think it's just a beautiful thing. And it's part of how we believe in God. When all else is hopeless, we put our hope in Him. That's a decision and something that we actively do. Number two, how did Abraham do it? Well, Paul says he faced the facts without compromising his faith. All right, this is interesting. Listen to this. Verse 19. Without weakening his faith, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver. Man, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. You know, I'm an Enneagram 6, and my colleagues already know that. If you don't know, it's just like this kind of personality matrix. And the Enneagram 6 is called the loyal skeptic. That's kind of like the summary of my personality. So sometimes I have kind of this tendency to come at new ideas with skepticism. And I can usually see the problems before I can see the benefits. So I'm a good guy to have on the team, but I need people kind of like with hope and, and optimism balancing me out sometimes. But what I, what I find myself doing as an Enneagram 6 sometimes is just kind of being real about the circumstances. You have to be careful that that doesn't just go into like pessimism. But I, I like looking at a situation for what it really is and not trying to pretend the obstacles aren't there. That's what Abraham does here. And I think it's a great model for me and for all of us to follow. He looked the facts straight in the eye and said, it's true. It's true. I'm not going to deny it. I'm childless. My wife is barren, we're super old, <laughs> and we're well past the point of procreation. Those are, those are the facts. That's not my opinion. That's just the variables that exist. It literally says his body was as good as dead, and Sarah's womb was dead. I mean, that's, that's it. That's, those are the facts. Yet he faced those facts without weakening his faith and without wavering in his belief on the promises of God. I mean, I'm good at looking at the facts, but I'm not sure I, I do it all the time without doubt and without weakening my faith and without wavering. I mean, what a model for us. He faced the facts without compromising his faith, without weakening or wavering. 
And the third thing Paul says in verse 20 is that he was fully persuaded that God could do it. Fully persuaded. Listen to this, verse 20. He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. That is why he was justified. Verse 22. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, how can you believe? How can you be fully persuaded that God could do it? How, is, is, that, is that an ideal too high? Is, is that a standard too lofty? I think the reason why Abraham was able to be fully persuaded that God could do it is that because he knew who God was. He knew the character of God. He got to know him. And as we get to know God more, our trust in him grows. The great thing about growing old, and he was 100 at this time, is that the older you are, the more opportunities you have to look back and see how God was faithful. You can look back and say, yes, I'm in a hopeless situation right now, but don't forget, I've been in these before, and look how they all turned out. I mean, not everything in life just goes perfectly and just works out. But I guarantee you, you walk with the Lord, and you will look back on trials and suffering in your life, and you will see the hand of God. And you will see that he was faithful, and that God can do it. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Paul, again, the good pastor he is, applies this to us, and to the Romans. And says, all this stuff, this applies just as much to us as it did to Abraham. Listen to his summary here, verse 23. The words it was credited to him were written not just for Abraham alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And here's the gospel. He, de he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. See, this gift of justification by faith is only available one way. It's through Jesus. And Jesus could only secure it in one way. Through, through the cross. Through death. And when God raised Christ from the dead, the power of sin, the thing that Paul has just spent the first three chapters telling us how big of a problem it is, now, because of Jesus and because God raised him from the dead, the power of sin has been broken. Death has been defeated. Sarah's womb was not dead anymore after God got involved. Jesus made a way for us to be at peace with God again. That is the main central outworking of justification. And I'm going to let John go there next week because that's where chapter 5 goes. But that is only possible through Jesus. That is how we are justified. And because God sent his son Jesus into the world, we have to believe in Jesus to know the Father. See, Abraham was working with the, with the revelation of God he had at that time. Now we fast forward thousands of years to the present day, and the revelation of God that we have is so much greater than what Abraham had to work with because the great revelation of God is Jesus. It's the risen, perfect Jesus. See, he lived a perfect life. He did earn salvation. He followed it all to a T. And then he went to the cross, even though he was innocent and sinless, to bear our sin and our shame and our mistakes so that we could be at peace with God. I was having a conversation with someone over coffee this week, and they were just telling me that 
They became a Christian because at one point in their life, they had a bunch of friends and they noticed that each one of them seemed to have this inner peace thing going on. That no matter what was happening in their life, they just seemed to be at peace. And she was drawn to it so significantly that she started asking big questions and eventually became a Christian because of this inner peace that she could see in other people. And I thought, boy, I, I don't know, am I giving off that vibe? Am I giving off like I always have inner peace no matter what vibe? That's, that's quite a challenge. But it was a challenge because somebody got saved because of that. So this is like a missional thing too. This is about influence. See, we have to understand that it's not by us. It's not our own righteousness. It's by putting our faith and trust in God and believing that he has done the work for us and we don't have to. So we ask our big question once more. What does it mean to believe God? Well, if you're not a Christian, if you're seeking faith, spirituality, if, if you're skeptical towards the whole thing, you just haven't crossed the line. Maybe like me, you grew up in the church and you walked away because you saw so much hypocrisy or whatever, and now you're thinking about it again. Let me just make this super, super clear for you. Romans 10, later in the book, Paul, again, says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's it. You will be saved. That is how you become a Christian. You don't earn for it. You don't have to have a perfect track record. You don't have to wear the right clothes, say the right things, go to the right places. You just have to put your trust in Jesus. Declare with your mouth that he's Lord. Believe in your heart that you truly believe God really did raise him from the dead. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Scripture says, anyone who believes in the name of the Lord will be saved. So I invite you, if you're listening to me, if you're here with us and you're not a Christian, would you consider putting your faith in Jesus? It's okay to have questions, by the way. No doubt. But would you consider making that step of faith? To those of us who are here this morning who are Christians, we walk with Jesus. We've been doing it for a short time or a long time. What does it mean for us to believe God in an ongoing way? This word ongoing... This is the key, I think, of the Christian faith. It's kind of like woodworking. So much of it is just boring faithfulness. Wake up and do it again tomorrow. Life is not lived all the time on the mountain peaks. As Pastor John would say, not everything is a fire tunnel. <laughs> Sometimes it's just faithfulness, keeping going. But that's what produces real life. That's what makes the beautiful table. I'll make my best furniture when I'm 70 years old. Not two or three years into it. Remember what Pastor John said when we were in the book of, why, why we're in the book of Romans right now. The purpose for this whole sermon series is so that God would resurrect a true Christian worldview in us and in our church. And in order for us to have a true biblical Christian worldview, I believe we have to know our identity. Because see, here's the thing. The world says your identity comes from what you've done, what you feel, you, you, you. God says your identity comes from what Jesus has done for you. That's it. And that is where our identity is found as people who believe in God. So to really believe in God in an active way, we have to know the character of God like Abraham did. And we have to know the promises of God. Like I said, we've got way more revelation of God than Abraham ever did. He didn't have this. <laughs> so I think this would be a pretty good place to start 
when we're talking about the promises of God and the character of God. See, the character of God, knowing the character of God, that, that helps us to trust him more. This is not a blind leap. We've said this for years here at Sanctus. Faith is not a blind leap. It's informed trust. So are you informed about who I'm asking you to trust, who you claim to trust? You've got to be informed. Here's the character of God. Five of his character traits, there's, there's many more. Let me sum it up. He's good, he's righteous, he's merciful and just, he loves you, and he crossed heaven and earth just to have a relationship with you. That's his character. That's who he is. And we have to be informed about the promises of God because these are what help us know our, our identity. Here are five that I just cherry-picked random. <laughs> Promises of God from Scripture. He will never leave us or forsake us. Never. He has come so that we may have life and life to the full. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. If we seek first the kingdom and His righteousness, all the other things will be given as well. Everything else in life will just start to fall into place. Matthew 6. And He is coming back again. And he's coming back again soon. Revelation 22. This is who God is. And these are the promises that he has given to us as his children. We need to believe in those promises and put our faith in him. That's how we believe God in an ongoing way over the long haul. We take these verses that we read a long time ago or just skim over because they're familiar. And we really believe them in our heart. We embrace them. We step into what God is already doing and put our faith in him. We walk by faith and not by sight. Even if you're in Enneagram 6 and you see all the problems, that is not how we live. That is not how we walk. We walk by faith and not by sight. We pray in faith. And when we pray, we, I'm telling, we pray in faith, believe. And we just keep going. We just keep going. My last point, speaking of keeping going, to us who are part of Sanctus Church, like part of it, I know some of you have joined us in the last couple of years since the pandemic, and others, you know me, we've been here for a little while. I hope you haven't forgotten what God has promised to our church. Maybe you don't know, maybe you haven't been here for a vision talk. John, Sam, they're going to talk about this soon. But we believe years ago God spoke to our church through multiple people. It was tested and affirmed. And we chose to embrace and believe that he was calling us to be a church of 10,000. Meeting the emotional, physical, and spiritual needs of people in Jesus' name. Now, I mean, we've gotten so much criticism for this over the years. But we just, we believe that's what God has called us to do. We don't think we're better. I mean, we've, we've got problems to work through. We've been working through them. But like... We believe that's what God has called us and promised to our church. We believe he's promised that we will go through seasons of renewal, revival, and awakening. I mean, I think these, these last three years, I think they've been like the worst parts of woodworking. This is just like sanding, never-ending sanding. It's just like it's been a grind lately. Doesn't look like revival. Church of 10,000? I mean, like, look at the empty seats beside you. I don't think God has forgotten I don't think God has forgotten his promise to us. And I really hope that we haven't. I believe God is looking for people of faith to say yes to his promises in faith and step into all that he wants to do in us at this church. It's not for us. 
but so that many people could come to believe in this Jesus who gave his life for us so that we could be justified in him and live at peace with God. It's so the whole world would see. It's not so people from other churches would come here. I'm not interested. You're welcome here. But like, I am excited and I believe in what God has called us to do because there are thousands of people who need to know Jesus. There are millions of people actually in like a one hour vicinity to us right now who don't know him. This is like a small piece of the pie. But is anything too hard for the Lord? I love what Eugene Peterson says in this chapter, in verse 3, in the message. He said, Abraham entered into what God was doing for him, and that was the turning point. If there's any blessing over the last couple years, I think we've learned that we can't do this on our own. There's no chance. Only he can do it, and we'll give him all the glory. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for what you did for us on the cross. God, thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, into the world to be your great revelation of who you are. Thank you for the Bible that you've given. Like Abraham didn't have this to go off. Thank you that we do and that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt the character of God and the promises of God so that when you ask us to believe you, it is not a blind leap but informed trust. Thank you that you're a God that is good. Thank you that you are trustworthy. Thank you that you are a God of hope in hopeless situations. Thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. And thank you that you care about us, us individually, because that's all we are. We're a church of individual people. And thank you that you care enough about our church that you would choose to draw near to us. And that's simply what we pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for the gift of faith over our whole church that you would help us to believe and embrace what you're asking us to do, not knowing where we're going, not knowing how to do it, that we would just follow you in faith. Would you receive all the glory, and would thousands of people come to know this justification by faith, the great solution to the problem of sin? Even now, Lord, would you be working and moving Holy Spirit in people's hearts and lives, that people would believe in you for the first time, or put their real life, everyday trust in you once again. And we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit the subscribe button to be notified when another episode releases. Well, that's it for today. May God bless you very much and have an awesome week.